on the web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. The Apostle Paul told Timothy to study and show himself approved as a workman who would not be ashamed handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you're a first-time listener for the next hour, we'll be taking questions that people have concerning maybe a passage of Scripture, an application of a biblical truth, or some issue that you're facing in your life that you'd like biblical counsel on. Again, the number locally, 525-1859. You can call us toll-free for all of our Internet listeners at 877 877- the call letters WAGP 980. Uh, or you can email us here directly into the studio. We get a lot of email questions every week, and those that email address is TBL for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. Rick, as always, it's great to be here today. It is indeed, Pastor. And uh, we had so many questions last week, we couldn't get to them all. We did have a caller that uh, called at the last minute wanting to know if the kingdom of God and the church are one and the same. Well, uh, that's a good question, Um, and a lot depends on who you are speaking with and how they're defining terms. Uh, There is a sense in the Bible that God is on his throne, that there's uh, a kingdom now uh, that, you know, God reigns over. Uh, But the Bible is very clear that there is a coming future kingdom that has not yet happened, that is yet to unfold. And the revelation speaks of the timing of the kingdom and how long it will be. Uh, This kingdom that will literally take place on the earth. One of the things that Jesus uh, taught us to pray in what we sometimes call the Lord's Prayer or the model prayer. uh, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, If you look at that context of that prayer, it's really a prayer for the coming kingdom that God's kingdom will literally come to earth. This is not a New Testament truth. This is an Old Testament truth that God speaks of where he, in passage after passage after passage, speaks of a changed uh, population upon the earth and a changed uh, even environment upon the earth and what it will be like and how it will unfold and, uh, you know, all the things that will be transpiring. I was in Israel um, a few weeks ago, and uh, we were uh, talking about this very issue because there's a whole movement in our nation. They usually are under the banner of reform theology. And uh, this group basically says that um, there is no coming literal kingdom where Jesus will rule and reign upon the earth, uh, that those promises that God made to the nation of Israel were were lost because of Israel's unbelief and disobedience. And now the church has become the new Israel. God's done with the Jewish people. Uh, So you will read and hear a number of reformed leaders in our country. And and right now, many of them have the upper hand in terms of, um, uh, you know, a platform and a voice. And that will change. That changes. It goes back and forth. 
Uh, but it seems a lot of them do right now, and many of them will, will, will tell you, look, there's no difference between Israel and Uganda. Uh, there's no difference at all. And so we're standing at the uh, Dead Sea. And, of course, the Dead Sea is uh, the saltiest place on the earth. It's the lowest place on the earth. Many believe that that's where Sodom and Gomorrah once stood. And when God rained down fire and brimstone, it changed the actual dynamic of that body of water. And it is what it is. Um, in either case, um, God speaks, for instance, a passage that comes to mind is, is in Ezekiel 47, where he uh, speaks of a coming day when God will um, bring water from the temple and uh, it will come down and it will flow down all the way to the salt sea or the dead sea and the, and the dead sea will become fresh and um, people will be able to fish. It will, it will come about that fishermen will stand beside it from Engedi to Englick. Um, and there there will be a place for the spreading of nets. Their fish will be according to their kinds, like the fish of the great sea, very many. Um, and so it speaks of this coming day when the salt sea becomes as fresh and there's going to be fish. Absolutely nothing lives in the Dead Sea. It's the saltiest piece of water. It's six times saltier than the ocean, but it's going to become completely salt-free. Is this just, you know, uh, chin music? Or is, is this going to actually happen? Of course it will. It's going to happen in the coming kingdom when Jesus will literally rule and reign upon the earth for a thousand years. The length of the kingdom is unfolded in the New Testament. And I saw thrones and they that sat upon them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who'd been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus, because of the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or his image had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Jesus will literally reign upon the earth for a thousand years. That's still in the future, has not yet happened. It will happen. Uh, The promises that God made to the people of Israel have not been completely fulfilled, but the covenant he made with them, at least the Abrahamic covenant, was an unconditional covenant. It wasn't conditioned on their faith or their obedience or anything else. It was unconditional, unlike other covenants that God made, like the Mosaic covenant. But the Abrahamic covenant was an unconditional covenant. God is going to keep that covenant. And so the church is not replaced Israel as Roman Catholics have taught. And as uh, some of the people who came out of Catholicism, like Luther and Calvin, they grabbed onto it. They put a different spin on it. But still, their theology in many ways was very Catholic when they thought about the people of Israel. And that's why they said some of the embarrassing things that they said Uh, that we have been forever apologizing for as evangelical Christians for centuries. Uh, But know that there's a coming kingdom on the earth, and the length of it is a thousand years. And, you know, when they come to passages like this in Revelation, they say, well, you know, that's just a number of fullness. It's not a literal number. Well, you know, you, you can't manipulate God's word like that unless something is stated as a symbol or the context indicates it's a symbol that represents another truth then you should literally interpret it. That's just good, solid, grammatical, historical uh, principles for exegeting the word of God. Every prophecy in the Old Testament that God gave concerning the first coming of Christ was literally fulfilled, not symbolically, but literally fulfilled. He's going to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. He's going to be pierced through for our iniquities. There'll be a rich man in his death and so forth. Every single prophecy over 300 were literally fulfilled. And so for us to think that God will fulfill the prophecies for the second coming of Christ in a different way 
well, there is no, there is no basis for interpreting the scripture in that way. So that's a really good question. And it affects a lot of realms of theology. If you really want to study it in great depth, you might want to consider taking uh, a course we offer through search the scriptures on eschatology, the doctrine of last things. And I taught it on 50 some Wednesday nights. So it's very in depth. It's not for the faint of heart. But if that's something you'd like to do, you can call Search the Scriptures or go online at searchthescriptures.org. If you have your smartphone, download the app at the App Store. Just type in Search the Scriptures, and it will bring up uh, our phone app. And you could listen to those 50-some messages, and you'll learn quite a bit. We, we teach those courses on a master's level. So I hope that might be helpful to this caller who's just emailed us. Let, let's go to the next question. All right. 525-1859. If you have a question for today's Bible line and our next listener uh, actually emailed at uh, TBL at net, they write, part of the Ten Commandments state that you are to honor your father and mother. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. My parents have been divorced and remarried to separate uh, individuals. Uh, again, when I was younger, the household was not stable. Even now that they are together again, they don't have a godly relationship. Is there a way that I can help them, or must they first become believers in Christ? Well, it's a good question, and, and many people do not grow up in healthy Christian homes, and sometimes they just come from terrible backgrounds where you think, well, what are these parents about? What are they doing? They seemingly sometimes don't care for their children. We're seeing this whole spirit grow in the days that we are finding ourselves in, where, you know, dads leave their homes for other women or mothers leave their kids for another man. And many times they're not even interested in in having, you know, responsibility for the kids. And it's just almost unthinkable, some of the things that are transpiring in our day. But this, of course, is what God predicted would happen at the end of time. In the last of the last days, when he gives that list in Second Timothy 3, what he determines to be difficult times, he speaks of people who are lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents. And on the list goes, and one of the things that he mentions is they will be without natural love. Uh, unloving in the uh, NASB, but literally without natural love. Uh, so it's the word phileo which speaks of a family kind of love like parents should have for their children and children should have for their parents. And it's a prefix with the alpha meaning without or not having. And so we're seeing this in our day. That does not change what God calls us to do as children. God doesn't say, well, you honor your father and mother just if they're great believers and love God or even if they don't love the Lord, but they cared for you and they were good parents. No, no, it's an unconditional command. Honor your father and your mother, period. Now, there may be some things that, you know, that means you won't mention. And uh, highlighting your parents' problems. Uh, sometimes uh, we, we think we're maybe getting people's empathy or sympathy, but in the process, we're dishonoring our parents. And so, you know, there are some things that are family business, so to speak, and you don't broadcast because in so doing, you bring dishonor to your parents, but you pray for them. That's certainly one way to honor them. Uh, You could certainly acknowledge their birthdays or maybe holidays with a visit or a card. You have to read the situation. Sometimes it's not healthy for a new family that is established at a marriage altar. And when that family grows, when they bring children to necessarily even physically visit 
uh, that parent because of the disruption and the heartache and the further problems they will bring into this new family that God has established. So you have to read that. You've got to seek God, but you still are to show honor and respect in whatever opportunities and ways that God gives you to do that. It's not conditioned on their coming to faith first. In fact, they may end up coming to faith because of the honor that you've shown them and that unconditional love. You may be the instrument. Uh, You may be the one that gives those prayers at the throne of God and God uses someone else to pull it off, but you still obey and honor them as much as you are able. Good question. I appreciate the thought and the sentiment behind it. Let's go to our first live caller who's been waiting. Indeed. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. You're welcome. I've got a question. If you can help me understand a Bible passage I was reading this morning. It's uh, Numbers 21 and 22. Um, it's, it's when Balaam is told by God to go with, with the uh, people from Moab. Yes. Um, and in the very next chapter, it says God was angry with him from going, and he sent an angel to stop him. I, I just didn't understand why he, it seems like he sent him to go, but then he was angry because he went. Well, it's a good question. Um, God permits Balaam to go, you know, with the princes. Among other things, God is testing him. And if you read chapters 20 through 22, you really see a a, a test that is unfolding. And, um, but there is a point there where, yes, God is testing him and he wants to see how he's going to respond and he responds negatively. So it has to be taken in the broader context and really too, to fully understood and appreciate all that's going to happen. You want to read a little bit later when you come to Numbers 31, where God gives some uh, commentary on uh, on these chapters that you've read. So go back and read Numbers 31. And then even in the Revelation, uh, Balaam is still mentioned in Revelation chapter 2 and in verse 14. Um, in either case, Balaam was not a believer. Uh, some people think, well, he prophesied on God's behalf, and that must meant that he was a believer. He was not a believer. When the New Testament gives commentary on his life, it becomes very apparent that this was a man who is determined to be by God an apostate. An apostate is someone who walks up to the uh, edge of faith, but doesn't step into it. Um, They look at the faith, they examine their faith, but they don't embrace it with their heart. And that's who Balaam was in essence. Um, He never fully embraced the truth that God had revealed. And so, you know, he's seeking God's will for selfish purposes. You know, Jude mentions, you know, the the money greeting heart that this man had. And that is many oftentimes true of an apostate. Uh, they've gone the way of Balaam. They're in the ministry for the money. And that's their whole motivation. And that's what this guy was about. And so um, this question has been answered in detail on the Bible line before. And so you can go back into the archives and you can listen to a more detailed answer. But I would just encourage you to go back and read some of these other chapters and it becomes really apparent all that was happening. But God's putting the man to the test and he fails the test. And when God gives the final commentary in his life in Jude verse 11, you can also see it highlighted in Second Peter 2. Even Micah the prophet mentions him. Uh, he's a total failure. He's just a failure. He's an unbeliever. You will not meet this man in heaven, unfortunately, not because God didn't love him or like him, 
uh, but because this man refused to uh, do what God ultimately called him to believe. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. We had a question uh, that was uh, phoned in by Chris. He uh, writes, I would like to know from the Bible if we have answers to the following questions about heaven. It says there will be a new heaven and new earth. Are these the same place? If not, what's the difference? If there is no nighttime, do we not sleep? Do we eat meat at the feasts? Uh, We know there's no marriage. Is there no sex? Will there be currency to pay for anything, or is everything free? Is there such a thing as houses? Do we live alone? And finally, will there be other planets in the new heaven? Well, a lot, lot of questions there. Let me see if I can hit on at least some of them. There are some passages like the one I uh, mentioned a few minutes ago from Ezekiel chapter 47 uh, that speaks of a rejuvenated earth. Uh, Isaiah the prophet in the latter chapters of his prophecy speaks in great detail to it. You know, he speaks about the baby playing next to the cobra's nest and not being harmed. And the uh, lion laying down with the wolf. And later there's a, a mention of a lamb. Uh, and that is, uh, that is yet to happen. Those are prophecies that God says is, go- says is going to take place, where the curse will seemingly be lifted off of the creation and there'll be harmony in the creation between the animal world and the man-made world. Those prophecies, sometimes people describe as heaven. That's not heaven. That's the millennial reign of Messiah when he's on the earth ruling and reigning for a thousand years. At the end of the millennial reign, something else happens. And and I highlight this because there's been several popular books that have been written on heaven in the last few years. And they take some of the passages that deal with uh, the promises to Israel in the Old Testament about the coming kingdom, which again is highlighted in the New Testament that we as believers will enjoy. And they use those passages to describe heaven. Now, there might be some characteristics that will cross over. And I have no doubt that that will be true, like that there will be harmony in the uh, coming new heaven and the new earth. But those passages are not dealing with the new heaven and the new earth. They are dealing specifically with the coming literal earth that is going to be changed and what will what will take place. Uh, we're told in Revelation um, at the end of the thousand years, it says, um, and when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, which, by the way, argues for a pre-tribulational rapture. Unless you totally dismiss the coming kingdom, like our reformed friends do for the most part. And so they just have one big event coming, the second coming. Uh, they, they look at, oh, the Antichrist and the tribulation. That all took place in the first century. It's over, it's past, it's historical. Uh, no, 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 no. Th- those things are still yet in the future. But they have to do that if they're going to make the church the replacement for Israel. And so there's no coming kingdom. There's just the second coming and, and we enter into the eternal state. Again, there's no reason for taking that position. So there are millennial, there is no millennium, but there are some Christians who say, well, there's a coming kingdom. That's clear. We can't dismiss all of the old Testament passages. And then some of the specific statements made in the gospels and, and in the revelation, Uh, But they think that the church will go through the great tribulation. 
impossible in light of a statement like this. I mean, think about it. If we're here for the seven-year Great Tribulation and then the church is caught up, the rapture, the catching up of the church is simultaneous with the second coming. That means we're caught up and then, in essence, we make a U-turn and come back to the earth. Well, when we're caught up and we have a resurrected body, then, number one, we won't be able to sin. And so if everyone is sinless and all unbelievers have been removed, which is what the Gospels tell us, uh, a passage that has been grossly abused uh, by Hal Lindsey um, in the 1970s. He wrote a popular book, The Late Great Planet Earth. Hal went to the same seminary I went to. He went to um, Dallas Theological Seminary. He did not learn this. Some of his professors came unglued. When he made this statement, you know, one will be taken, one will be left, that that was a reference to the rapture. No, it has nothing to do with the rapture. Look at the context. Look at the flow of thought. It happens at the end of time on the, of, of the great tribulation that Jesus speaks of. One will be taken away in judgment. Those who are left will be left here who survived the tribulation to enter into the millennial reign of Christ. And so, Hal, you know, someone uh, wrote me a detailed letter saying, well, you shouldn't dismiss, you know, you shouldn't criticize him because, you know, he's been married five times and they wanted to know if I had something against him. I don't have anything against him, Um, uh, you know, personally. Uh, I've never even shaken the man's hand. I've seen him. We're both on staff with Campus Crusade, but he's not a personal friend. I don't have anything against him. But you ought to look at a man's lifestyle, because if a man's lifestyle is a lifestyle of rebellion and sin, then he's really not walking in the fullness of the Spirit, and you ought to therefore question the integrity of some of his interpretations. And so there's good reason for looking at a man's lifestyle. God says when you look at leaders in the church, you ought to look at their life. And yes, God, you know, in the letter of the person who wrote, and I know they're well-meaning and sincere, well, God's used them. Sure, well, God used Jim Baker when he was, you know, having an illicit relationship, um, you know, during the 1980s. God used Jimmy Swaggart when he was visiting prostitutes. That was not because of those men. That was in spite of those men. That's because of the power of the Word of God, which is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And sometimes even from an unclean, rebellious heart, God will still honor his word. Just like as we've already referenced this morning from the book of Numbers, Balaam. He gets up and he prophesies and he says true things. Um, And he says things that are right and and accurate. Why? Because the spirit of God came upon him and spoke through him, even an unbeliever. But that was not because of him. That was in spite of him. And so there are illustrations of that. But... Again, if at the end of the thousand years, the devil is loosed to tempt the nations of the earth, who can he tempt if the rapture and the second coming is one simultaneous event? But if the rapture takes place before the second coming, and it's part of the second coming program where the church is caught up and then we come back with Christ to rule and reign, then those who've been saved during the time of the great tribulation, they will enter into the millennial reign in their natural bodies. There will be death for some of those during the millennium. That's why Isaiah said, if a man lives only to be 100 years, he's considered cursed. But people will live for a protracted period of time, much like before the great flood. And so you can have a lot of children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-grandchildren if you live 900, 1,000 years. And some of those children of tribulation saints and grandchildren and great-grandchildren will not believe in Jesus as Lord. 
and the devil at the end of that thousand years will be released and he will go against God's Messiah and he will uh, draw out these unbelieving children. You say, how could they not believe with Jesus literally ruling and reigning upon the earth? Well, why didn't they believe when he walked on the earth the first time? Um, the same problem, it really highlights the rebelliousness of man. Even when the devil's locked up for a thousand years, he's deceiving no one. And so no one can say, well, the devil made me do it. The, the only one they'll be able to take responsibility for is their self, uh, that they were an unbeliever because they chose to be. And so one of the functions of the millennial reign, among other things, will really show and highlight how really fallen man is because of what he will do, even without the devil around and the devil who uh, deceived them as well as thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone along with the beast and the false prophet. The great white throne judgment happens where all the dead are brought before God. I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whom's presence heaven and earth fled away. So heaven and earth are gone at this point. Where do they go? Well, second Peter tells us God burns it with fire. Uh, God totally obliterates the current heaven and earth as we know it. So he's going to destroy it. And so sometimes when people describe heaven, they say, well, God's just going to kind of prop up the whole thing and make it nice and new. And no, again, they are confusing the passages that deal with a rejuvenated earth during the millennium with the new heaven and the new earth. So uh, Randy Alcorn, he wrote a book on heaven and he's a good guy. I, I, I love him as a brother. And he wrote a lot of good things, but he doesn't see a literal new heaven. He just sees a rejuvenated heaven. No, that's not the picture. That is not the picture at all. God is very, very clear. He says, but the, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, not at which, but in which, because the day of the Lord is not a single 24-hour day. It's a protracted period of time that mimics a biblical day that starts with the rapture of the church and goes all the way through the end of the millennium. And so a day starts at sunset, gets dark during the night, gets bright the next morning, ends up at sunset the next day. Well, the day of the Lord is not a 24-hour day, unlike other days, like the six days of creation with no gaps in between, but it's a protracted period of time. And I believe we're moving into the shadows of the Great Tribulation even now. But when the church is removed, it's going to get really dark. And it's going to be the worst time in human history. Jesus said, there's never been a time like it. There'll never be a time like it again. Uh, The worst time in human history will be the time of the great tribulation. It will be as dark as night. But when Jesus then comes back at the second coming, at the end of the seven years, it will get as bright as day. And that brightness will last for a thousand years. But at the end of the millennium, when the devil is released to tempt the children and grandchildren of tribulation saints, it will get dark again. But then a new day will dawn. And so um, God is very specific. He says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intensity and the earth and its works will be burned up, period. That's what he says. Uh, it's going to be totally destroyed, destroyed by burning. Verse 12 says there in Second Peter 3. And so then John says, and I saw a new heaven, not a rejuvenated heaven and earth, but a new heaven and a new earth. Why? Because the first heaven and the first earth passed away. So your first question is, yes, new heaven, new earth. Uh, You ask, will there be sex in heaven? Um, You know, some of our Muslim friends seem to think so. You know, you commit, you know, and participate in some jihad experience or 
you're a martyr, so to speak, for your Muslim faith, and you know, you'll be given 72 virgins. That's not the picture uh, that God gives in the Word of God. Remember on that occasion when uh, the, the, the um, Sadducees came up to Christ? You remember there was the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians. The Pharisees were more religious and uh, more conservative in their view of Scripture. The Sadducees were really liberals. They only accepted the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. They said the rest was not inspired. Um, And among other things, they denied the doctrine of the resurrection. And they felt like the resurrection was not taught in the Torah, and therefore they should not believe it. And so if you remember on that occasion, they came to to Jesus uh, testing him, and they give this bizarre example of this woman who... You know, is married seven times and they want to know, you know, well, whose who's, uh, husband will she be in the coming resurrection? You can read of this in, in Matthew chapter 22. And, and then Jesus says, um, and well, let me just read their last statement. And last of all, the woman died and in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven shall she be? For they all had her. And Jesus answered, You're, you are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures, nor the power of God. So you abuse the word of God. And you don't really believe in the power of God. And that typically is what characterizes any liberal theologian, even in our day. And then he says, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. He does not say you become angels in heaven. And many unbelievers, even Christians, have misunderstood this text. And, you know, they'll say to you at the funeral home, oh, he's an angel now in heaven. He's earned his wings. Well, no, he's not an angel. We don't become angels. In fact, the Bible says that humans are different from angels, that we will judge angels. Um, we are become like the angels, is what he says. In what sense? Well, he says, um, for, in, uh, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So there's no marriage in heaven. Uh, one of the purposes of of sex, it's meant to build unity in a marriage relationship, but it's also for procreative purposes so that people can have children. And in heaven, there is no marriage, Jesus says. That does not mean that we won't have special relationships with family members or anything, but there's no marriage. There's no marriage. So the need for sex to build that unity will be gone. There's no procreation in marriage. There's a fixed number of redeemed. Uh, There's no death in heaven. So God's very clear. And really, in heaven, the focus is on our service and our worship. Just read Revelation 5 as an illustration of that. And some of the appetites that we have in this world, on this side of heaven, will be given over to more, gratif- to more gratifying appetites that God will have for us in our resurrected bodies. So, you know, some of the bizarre teachings of the Muslim faith have bled even into Christianity, and they're just not true. Um, so anyway, I hope that will get you started. You might want to uh, listen to an hour-long message that I preached, What is Heaven Like? And if you go to searchthescriptures.org, and uh, you scan down through some of the messages. I did one series on Bible prophecy, and one message is what is he- hell like, and another is what is heaven is like, and that will give you a much more detailed answer. But I appreciate the question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or you can always email us at tbl at net. 
Our next listener writes, in Genesis 3.16, what does the word desire mean here? And thy desire shall be to thy husband. Let me just set the context. If you remember, um, God had created man in his own image and likeness. And part of being made in the image and likeness of God is a choice. And God said in Genesis 2, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat from it, you shall surely die. And of course, uh, man was given that choice. There were thousands, I suppose, trees they could have participated from and one that they were encouraged to eat from, the tree of life. And had they eaten from the tree of life in their unfallen state, they would have been forever sealed in that creature perfection that God made Adam and Eve in. But because they chose to rebel against God, uh, the picture totally drastically changed in every respect. And so on that day, they did die immediately on the inside. And so now they begin to feel guilt and estrangement from God. For the first time, man is now aging and now we're born aging. Uh, We are getting older from the day we're born and headed toward the grave. And of course, if the problem's not fixed before one leaves this earth or before Christ comes back, then they experience eternal death. So the fall has taken place. And then um, God, if you remember brought the curse upon man. The Lord said, because you've done this, and he gives the curse on the serpent in Genesis 3.15, and then he begins to give the curse on the man and on the woman. And to the man, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head. You shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And then to Adam, so he he, he spells it out to the, to the devil, um, and ultimately his end. It's a great messianic promise. I preached a sermon once just on what I call the first Christmas message from Genesis 3, 14 and 15, and the promise of Messiah that is given here in kernel form, and it's unfolded through Genesis and really through the entire Old Testament, the curse on the woman and then the curse on the man. But to the woman, he said, I'm going to multiply you in pain and during childbirth. That's pretty obvious. Doesn't matter whether you have a C-section or a natural birth. It's painful. The pregnancy is and even the delivery. Um, and then he says, yet your desire shall be for your husband. Now, in Hebrew here, there's no verb in the phrase. It literally reads towards your husband, your desire. Um, but because it is predictive, um, a future tense is added, and in the Hebrew mind, they will supply the verb sometimes. And in, in English, we have to write it out. They think maybe a little different than we do, but God is basically saying, look, woman, there's going to be a power struggle that is now going to enter into the marriage relationship. Originally, the way God designed it is clearly outlined in the second chapter, is there is an interdependent relationship that God makes between the man and the woman, Uh, They are different in terms of their gender, and they are different in terms of their roles. They are equal in the sense that they're both created in the image of God, male and female, God created them, Uh, but they have different roles. And now that the fall has taken place, instead of the man alone wanting to lead his wife and care for her, uh, she also wants to lead. What is that going to mean? It means they're going to knock heads. Now, when it says he shall rule over you, that's not a command for him to be a dictator, to dominate over her, but to be the leader, to be the spiritual leader of his home, the nurturer, the servant leader. 
And he is, as the New Testament highlights, is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. But she will want to lead as well. And so that's in the DNA of the woman, just like the man has some sinful tendencies in his DNA, so does she. And one of the things a wife will want to do is to usurp her husband's leadership. And she needs to be aware of that. That's just part of the fall. It's written into the fallen nature. And so there is potential there to really bang heads. And some guys just acquiesce and they become, you know, um, you know, passive and it, that creates problems in the family. It's better to work through these problems. Some men don't want to carry out their role that they are called to do. Uh, many a man more and more today, they, they want their wife to go out and work and, you know, they're Mr. You know, homebody and no, they are to in toil and in sweat. Uh, work. They're to go out and be the provider. She's the home worker. He's the provider. Um, that's the way God created it. We are blurring these distinctions in our day. We are obliterating these role differences that God has made, and we're paying a great price for it. And so in a lot of homes, for instance, uh, forget about a stay-at-home dad. You've got, in most situations, both parents going out to work. Now, my hat is off to a family who's trying to put food on the table. Um, But the wisest way for a woman to earn money, if she is able to, is to do it from her home. That's the teaching of Proverbs 31. He's not talking about a woman who has a real estate company and she abandons her home and puts her kids in child care to be some spectacular super mom. No, he's talking about a woman who earns additional funds in addition to what her husband does, but she does it from the home and that's admirable. And that's a great thing. Uh, Lay that aside. um, You know, what a lot of families are doing is they start. Unfortunately, when a new family is created, a family is not created when you have children, your family grows when you have children in God's eyes, a family is created at the marriage altar. And that's why the woman takes his name. He doesn't take her last name. She takes his name. Why, is she, why do we do Because we're affirming headship. We are affirming the biblical counsel that God has given us that the man is the head of his home. And so she takes his name. And so in some of these marriages where a woman keeps her maiden name and goes by that, you're almost no right off. You, you're walking into some real problems. She's in violation. She's, she's doing what Genesis 3.16 says she'll do. Your desire will be for your husband. And she's not really, uh, she wants to rule over him. And, and she's not really recognizing that he is the head. And if you have two heads, you've got a monster. And if you have no head, there's no direction. Uh, so God, God created this structure for a reason. And one of the things that a family, a healthy family should model in the smallest um, substructure of society, what we call the family, is the need to have a leader. Where does the child learn to respect his teacher in school or the police officer or government or ecclesiastical leaders? He learns it, or at least he's supposed to in the home. But that model is being obliterated in our day because we've erased it and through so many different ways. So um, God's word is clear. And so these couples will make decisions financially when they are newly married and they build their financial structure on two incomes. And then a pregnancy happens and a baby comes along and all of a sudden they are morally obligated to pay some bills instead of being able to go home and to be with that baby, that child is put in some daycare arrangement. That's not God's design. 
God's design is for you to raise the child. And so now we've seen now a generation of daycare babies and look at the turmoil we have in America. It's absolutely disastrous. 80% of the people, kids, they say, who are raised even in evangelical churches are totally walking away from the faith. Why? Because the parents aren't capturing the hearts of those children and bringing them into the kingdom of God. Why? Because they've abandoned God's structure for the family. If you think three or four hours in the church is going to replace the 168 hours in the week and the majority of time in which you have your children, um, you're, you're, you're mistaken. It, it may happen again in spite of you, but not because of you. And so we've created a disastrous situation in America where the very fabric of our culture is falling apart. And children no longer have even forget whether they've met Christ because they have so little time with their parents. And God's word is clear. He who walks with the wise becomes wise, but a companion of fools will suffer harm. They don't have any theological backbone. And they're embracing all kinds of error. And it's really setting the stage for the coming great apostasy that is still in front of us. But the seeds have been sown in this generation. So, um, you know, again, you, you can't change the whole world, but you can certainly take responsibility for yourself. And so, like, one of the things I do as a pastor, if I'm going to marry someone, among other things that they have to do is they have to go through our financial course, which, by the way, we're teaching right now on Wednesday nights. We just started it last week. And for the next seven or eight weeks, we'll be teaching what the Bible says about finances. And, you know, unless someone's grown up in, say, the church I pastor, if they're members of our church and they're coming to our staff for someone to marry them, if they haven't grown up in the church, typically they are bringing total financial ignorance into the counseling office when we do premarital counseling. Why? Because the dads and moms are not modeling biblical principles. I'm not just talking about tithing. That's one aspect, and we'll cover that. What the Bible says about giving, but we'll also cover what the Bible says about saving, what the Bible says about debt, what the Bible says about investing, and then how to take all these biblical principles and to um, put them into shoe leather in a very practical way. So um, we've destroyed what God has said and what God's design is. The man is not the principal breadwinner and the woman is wanting to take the leadership role of the man. And it's just a disaster. Listen, if you want what the world is producing, do what the world says. You, you want what the world is offering, do what they do. But if you want something different, and, you know, the divorce rate in the church is virtually no different from the divorce rate out of the church. If you want something different, then you need to start going God's way. And among other things, you need to be in a Bible-believing church where the pastor actually opens up the Bible so your mind can be renewed. Um, and a dad should be making that decision. He shouldn't be saying, well, kids, where do you want to go to church? What does that have to do with anything? Oh, they like to go to the church because they got some friends here from school. That doesn't have anything to do with anything. Dad, you are the spiritual leader, and you are to 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 make a wise decision. What's the healthiest church that we can be in? And that's the church you should plug into. You should support your pastor. You should pray for him. You should serve there, and your kids ought to see that example. Anyway, uh, let's go to the next question. Indeed, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or you can email us at tvl at net. Our next listener uh, writes... Uh, uh, 
we've actually got a complicated situation. She's a Christian um, person, A, and she went into a financial agreement with someone who was not a Christian. We'll call that person person B. Now the non-Christian is defaulting on the financial agreement and says in the interim they have become a Christian. Is the Christian in violation of 1 Corinthians 6 if she takes the other to court? Good question. And again, uh, we will cover this very issue in the financial course. And it's very, very important, some of the issues we're covering. You entered into a binding agreement with an unbeliever. And when you did that, um, you um, took responsibility. It's just like when someone co-signs for a loan. Someone Christian comes to you and says, you know, I I got a good job now. I got terrible credit. And, you know, I really need a car. And I just wondered maybe if you wouldn't mind co-signing for me. Well, the Bible doesn't forbid that, but it really speaks negatively against it. Why? Because, number one, when you co-sign for the loan, you morally obligate yourself to that loan. So that if Christian A, who is a disaster in the way he manages his finances, can't get a car loan on himself and he has to come to you to co-sign, you know, unless there's been some dramatic changes in the way he handles money, he's just going to repeat the problem all over again. What kind of dramatic changes do you look for? I look for one, a renewed mind. They've gone through a course like the one we're teaching on Wednesday night, what God says about money, and they actually have a budget, and they're living within their God-given means, and they're getting out of debt, and, you know, and all those things. Uh, if those things aren't in place and you co-sign for a loan or you enter into an, an engagement here, you entered into a financial engagement, that makes you morally culpable under the law of man and under the law of God to fulfill the promise that you made with this person, even if now as a Christian he defaults. So what should you do? Well, the starting place, God says, is you go uh, to the man's uh, pastor and you say, listen, I have a problem um, with this person who's now come to faith in Jesus Christ, and he's a member of your church. That's one of the marks of conversion. By this, we know we pass out of death into life. They love the brethren. So that's an assumption I'm making, that this person is now a member of a, a born-again, Bible-believing uh, church. And uh, you go, and uh, you say, hey, listen, this is what's happening. Um, I-, I need your help. And so you have what you might call pastor's court or elder's court or deacon's court or however the polity of your church may, you know, unfold the principle that is um, taught here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And, and God says, or do you not know that the saints, uh, well, he first asks the question, does not any uh, among you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous? And not before the saints, or do you not know that the saints, believers, will someday judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, uh, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Don't you know that we shall judge angels? How much more matters of this life? If then you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man? will be able to decide between his brethren, but brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers. Actually, then it is already defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? That's preferable, he says, than to go to the court and to say, hey, let, let us tell you our problems as Christians. Why not rather be defrauded? 
Paul's point, the way this rhetorical question is asked is it, that would be preferable. Um, on the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud and that your brethren. So um, here's the biblical problem uh, unfolded, the biblical solution to the problem. You've got a problem against your brother. You, you, you go reprove him in, in quiet. If he doesn't listen, then you take some wise men in the church and you go to the pastor in, again, if there's multiple pastors or elders or deacons, however, and you present the problem before them. You say to your brother, look, I, I, I don't want to sue you. I know God speaks against going to court. We're going to go and we're going to meet with the elders of the church. And they will hopefully come up with a solution where this brother uh, pays his part. What might that mean? There might be some assets he has. Maybe he's got some, you know, antique in the house that his grandmother gave him. Something to sell it, make the payment. Maybe he's got a second car and they could live on one. Sell it, make the payment. Maybe they got three cell phones, smartphones in their family, and they need to go to three regular super duper dummy, dummy phones. Do it, whatever it takes. Those are the kinds of decisions where the rubber meets the road that wise men will decide. If he says, I'm not doing what you guys say, then they say, well, you need to. We're, we're your spiritual heads. The Bible says, obey your leaders. Well, I'm not doing what you say. Then what do you do? They're excommunicated. Uh, they're disfellowshipped from the church at that moment. They're, they're treated as a tax collector. And so you have a choice at that point. You can either A, just bite the loss yourself and you pay it off all by yourself, or B, because they're treated as a tax collector, given enough time for their repentance, then you might at that point you know, take them to court because they're, con- they're considered like an unbeliever. And there are unbelievers in the church. The Bible says the wheat and the tare will be uh, mixed together into the time of the judgment. But if you're convinced, no, they're actually a born-again Christian, they're just living in disobedience, then I would leave it alone. I would let God whip them, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And so if they really are born again, let God deal with them and give plenty of time for that. And you're going to have to take responsibility. But again, the decision that you made possibly in the front end was an unwise decision. And that's what we want to prevent Christians from doing in the financial seminar, because we'll look at a lot of scenarios just like the one you highlighted. Let's go to the next question. All right. I think we've got time for one more. Uh, This kind of works itself down to the bottom issue of works. Um, Why do some Christians erroneously believe that they must follow the Ten Commandments and keep the Sabbath to be saved? Well, um, the Ten Commandments are ten moral dictates that are not suggestions, uh, but they are binding. It is true that someone might say, well, nine out of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament with the exception of keep the Sabbath day holy. I would say that all ten still apply, though the application may change. For instance, God says in the Fifth Commandment, honor your father and mother that it may be well with you, that you may live long in the land. In the land of what? In the land of Israel, he's talking about, because there's a theocracy and God's people live in this nation called Israel when Moses writes that commandment. Under the New Covenant, Paul quotes the same thing, but he changes the application of it. He doesn't say that it might be well with you and you might live long on the land, but you might live long on the earth. Why? Because God's people now are an international community spread across the world. And it can apply whether you live in Israel or the United States or Germany or France or any other nation you can think of. So the Ten Commandments are still binding. The application may change. And under 
this dispensation, at this time in human history, God's people honor the first day of the week. That's what he says. And so under the new covenant, the Lord's day, because the Lord of the Sabbath dictated this, we meet on the first day of the week. God's people are still to do that. Some of the Sabbath laws were part of God's ceremonial law, and some of the Sabbath restrictions don't apply under the new covenant. And God in his wisdom saw to that. Um, You know, you have um, some um, 600,000 people who are in slavery when the New Testament is written under the Roman Empire. Uh, that's why a lot of churches didn't meet, you know, Sunday morning, at 11 o'clock. That comes more out of that time frame, Pilgrim America, uh, that they met Sunday night. Why? Because that's when maybe the slave was off and had the freedom to meet with the people of God. But they still met on the first day of the week in light of the Lord's um, commandment to keep one day in seven in which to refresh ourselves, But it's certainly not a basis for salvation. We're not saved by keeping the Ten Commandments. We're saved by the grace of God through faith in Christ alone. Let's see if we can tweak in one more question, Rick. And All right, very good. Uh, the next uh, listener would uh, like to know the following. Where in the Bible can they learn about spirits on earth? Yesterday on the radio, a pastor said if someone commits a suicide in the house, their spirit can stay in that house. Uh, this listener's wife and he want some clarification on the matter. Well, that's pretty bizarre. Um, there are certainly demonic spirits that can work. But, you know, if someone commits a suicide, their spirit does not stay in the house. Uh, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. If a Christian, which rarely happens, most suicides are committed by unbelievers, but it's in the realm of possibility for a Christian to commit suicide. If a believer does it, he's absent from the body, present with the Lord. Great ramifications of those who are left behind, consequences because of his decision and ramifications when he gets to heaven in terms of rewards. Uh, but an unbeliever, his spirit departs, and where does it go? God's very clear, Luke 16, he goes to Hades. So there's no spirits left in the house. Uh, that's just bad theology, if you're representing what that pastor said accurately. Anyway, um, if you want to study the spiritual realm in terms of fallen demons, you might want to go to searchthescriptures.org. We taught a course on angelology and Listen to that course. That might be helpful to you. We're out of time for today, though. But as always, we're so glad that you were able to join us for this hour. If you have questions, you know, we try to get to them. Sometimes it takes me a month or two. Some questions I just don't have enough time to answer. And some of those Rick will shoot to me here at the Bible line because I can talk faster than I can type. Uh, some questions, you know, I just got to prioritize them because I'm one person. So when a pastor writes me from from Africa and he says I've got people in my church now that have been married you know four people and now they've come to faith in Christ and they want to know which wife I should keep I I can't ignore that when a pastor writes that and so I take the time to give detailed answers and I do my best but we're glad to to have this ministry and to be of help to those who get their questions answered hope you have a great day as you walk with Jesus Christ 